Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Well, it's the Friday News Roundup, except it's not Friday, but Reset actually gets the day off tomorrow. And since there was a lot of news this week, we figured let's dish out a Thursday news roundup. Illinois health officials are reporting another 30 people have died from COVID-19, and they've identified 828 more cases of the virus. The city's minimum wage will increase to $14 an hour for most workers. They're now also entitled to more predictable schedules. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raul says he's negotiating with law enforcement groups about having the state license police officers. The Chicago Police Department says the city in June had 89 murders, more than any month since August 2016. I struggle to make sense of the reckless gun violence that continues to take the lives of our young people. Joining me now to break down those stories and more is Kimberly Egoen. She is an attorney, activist, and commentator for WVON. Kimberly, welcome back to Reset. Very nice to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. And also with us, ProPublica Illinois reporter and columnist Mick Dumpke. Hey, Mick. Hey, Justin. Nice to hear your voice on the air. Be yeah, here. Good, to, good to talk with you. All right, so let's get right into it. As we head into the 4th of July weekend, I want to talk about the recent surge in, in gun violence across the city. You heard the numbers in that montage where uh, June was the biggest number since I think it was 2016. Uh, in the last two weekends, uh, obviously uh, dozens of people shot, but also several young children. Kimberly, let me start with you. What's your take on how the city's responding to this? Well, I think that the city's response has been pretty consistent with how it has responded since 2016, which will be the last year that we've seen this type of spike in the number of murders. It, it is senseless. It is senseless crime, but it does stem from issues dealing with a lack of resources, um, neighborhoods that have been completely decimated of all economic engines and resources, and it seems like policing is either going to be the way that the city uh, continues to try and deal with it, or in some cases, when we look at the blue flu text that went out from mm-hmm. the Fraternal Order of Police, that also might be the way in which the, the Chicago Police Department may not be able to deal with it because they're telling police to continue to stand down when it comes to trying to solve some of the crimes here. Along with that spike, you know, we have to also uh, acknowledge the fact that with the spike in the murders and with the spike in the violent crimes, the number of arrests have gone down drastically to the degree that people are questioning whether or not police are doing their job. Oh, yeah. And we had uh, President Preckwinkle on talking about the clearance rate uh, earlier this week, and it was it's still startling. 80, 90 percent of murders in this town don't get solved or no one gets arrested on or charged on any of it. Uh, and Mayor right. Lightfoot, I want to play this clip real quick because uh, she says that the violence is the result of a perfect storm. So let's listen to this. We have almost three months of COVID-19. Some of our law enforcement partners have not been fully online because of their own concerns about the risk, the jail, um, the courts, uh, the federal uh, partners. And what we still see, though, is the underlying root causes of uh, violence, and that's poverty, lack of hope, despair, not not enough access to um, really the things that we know build healthy and strong families and communities. Mick, let me ask you that the question about how we got to this point, but also to hear the idea that COVID-19 plays a role, that that makes a lot of sense. But if you just look at the history of Chicago, 
these numbers are consistent and they may, you know, sort of ebb and flow throughout the years. But, you know, COVID-19 is new and violence is as old as time here. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the mayor is correct in that the current moment um, is undoubtedly tied in some way to the pandemic and then people being feeling uh, both cooped up and then freed. And then uh, let's just face it, I don't know anyone who hasn't had some kind of uh, mental health issue, just feeling down in the dumps, whatever, the last few months. I think it's undeniable that that has some kind of an impact. Um, Kimberly mentioned the last time we saw statistics that tie were in 2016. And let's not forget the particular moment of the spike back then was uh, post-release of the Laquan McDonald shooting mm, video. Right. Um, so exactly. you're absolutely right, Justin. I mean, I, this has though been a long-time uh, issue, uh, a public health crisis that's been going on that's consumed uh, the political capital of mayors. Superintendents have come and gone. I think the thing um, right now that people are particularly weary about, in addition to uh, the victims, the ongoing uh, children who are being hit in this ongoing crisis, is just the lack of, of fresh ideas, the lack of a fresh approach. That, and yeah. I guess in fairness, yeah, in fair, quickly, in fairness to the mayor and her team, if you're talking about what are you going to do this weekend, I don't know what they can realistically do in that short a period of time. She has talked about some of the longstanding issues behind the violence. But uh, to return this thing around, it's obviously going to take the kind of sustained investment that uh, the mayor was talking about that Kimberly mentioned a minute ago. Yeah, Kimberly, it seems that David Brown, who came in as a police superintendent, he's been on the job for just a couple months now. There was a lot of hope that he was, you know, being the first Lori Lightfoot appointed police chief, that he would bring fresh, innovative ideas. And there's a lot of critics this week that say everything that's coming out of his mouth on behind the podium, at least, seems to be uh, in lockstep with what superintendents of the past have said. Definitely. And also, Justin, um, if you if you're listening to his message that he gave on Monday, he is letting us know that he's feeling the heat um, of this idea that he is not from Chicago and he is not of Chicago. Let's face it. Chicago has got a history of violence um, from the 1800s with the initial um Irish, Polish, Italian, yeah. Jewish gangs. I mean, that is something that has just transformed into what we see now. There's always been an issue with gangs. There's always been an issue with violence. He comes from, to us from another city, another state, different culture. He probably has never seen anything like what he's seeing right now. And although he did come in and people, you know, we need him to succeed. Everyone wants to see him succeed because that means that the city has gotten the violence under control, has gotten these murders down. But the, the fact of the matter is he, he sounded a little bit naive when he said he was going to keep the murders down under 300 yeah, as soon right. as he came in, not knowing what exactly he was walking into. I have to agree with Nick, this idea that there are no new ideas. And at what point, Justin, do we say, do the politicians say something that could have a terrible effect on their careers, but they just don't know how to get this under control? Well, at what point do they admit That's that? a great point. I want to play this clip next. Uh, this, is, uh, this is David Brown, the police superintendent. Talking about arresting teens, as, as you know, the mayor's pushback on the idea they're teens, they're adults, uh, but on this idea of, quote-unquote, drug corners ahead of the holiday weekend. Let's play a clip of that. Our end game is arrest for the precursors to violence. So every day we're going to be clearing corners. Every day we're going to be clearing these drug corners to protect these young people from violence. But when we clear the corner, we're, we're pleading with uh, the court systems. 
keep them in jail through the weekend. If we make arrests Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're pleading through the weekend at least. Not for forever, through the weekend. Let's protect these young people who are a victim of their circumstances in many cases. They have no other opportunity. Hmm. Kimberly, it sounds like, I mean, really, to me, it sounds like a spin on the infamous stop and frisk policy. I mean, that, that, that's what that seems like. And again, as you just mentioned, like, you know, getting up in front of the podium and, and not being from Chicago and maybe not knowing exactly what has been done here in the past, it, it, it does seem like we're going into retreaded territory. So another thing that is retreaded, uh, Justin and Nick, is this idea that there is a lot of blaming of other branches of government. And the superintendent has fallen in lockstep in that form um, by saying that it's the state's attorney's fault, it's the judge's fault, that people who are placed in jail are not kept there long enough. We got an opportunity to interview state's attorney Kim Fox yesterday um, to ask her about her response to that, because in order to keep people in jail for four days, if they're, you know, arrested on Thursday, which is what the superintendent proposes, they would have to keep them in jail throughout the entire holiday. And the state's attorney said, simply the Constitution does not allow her to do that. She is not going to also ask for judges to set bails higher than, you know, just for the purpose of keeping people in jail. It's not going to happen. So this sweeping of corners, grabbing everyone who looks like they might be violating or about to violate, you said precursor to violent crime. So anyone who looks like they might be about to break the law, that's not going to fly for the city of Chicago. (laughs) No way. Mick, you've been covering this for a long time. I, I, I hearken back to the yeah. days of daily, the lo- anti-loitering stuff of the 90s, this idea yeah. that, that you could just precursor, go in and arrest somebody for, for gathering. That's right. Anti-loitering ordinance that the city council passed at the height of the gang wars of the 90s, where we had record murder rates at that time. We had more people in, uh, in the, living in the city, and we had uh, around 900 murders or more a year, several years in a row. I mean, the broader point we're, we're all talking about here is there's this bigger conversation going on around the country about the nature of policing, the nature of law enforcement. And so if you have politicians and you have the media and you have uh, other citizens out there who are basically saying, Mayor, fix this problem this weekend. Superintendent Brown, fix this problem. Well, what's the superintendent supposed to do? Yeah, right. He is the leader of the police department. He's the leader of a law enforcement department. His response is going to be law enforcement. So I think that, you know, this doesn't just fall on the superintendent. There have to be other kinds of solutions. I wonder amid all the the hand-wringing and the finger-pointing that's gone on again in the last couple of weeks, you know, have people stopped to talk to uh, young men who are picked up with illegal guns, young men who have been shot? We're talking mostly about men. That's why I'm talking about young men, you know, the young women too. But let's talk to the people who are literally caught in the crossfire here. Kimberly, the, the president uh, sent a letter to uh, the mayor and to the governor of Illinois, essentially talking about, uh, of course, uh, the violence problem, but saying that he's available to collaborate. <laughs> he's, he's ready to go, but uh, they're failing miserably at, the, at, the count, at the, both state and city level. What's your response to that? Because the, the Tribune put an editorial out that seemed to say, hey, you know, instead of, of all of this politics, why don't you take the uh, president's offer up? It's the way in which, of course, he presented that letter 
it's just so politically motivated, even the tone of it and the words used and calling someone a failure, but then wanting to collaborate with them. That is very disingenuous. Yeah, right, right. I mean, you can't you can't say that anything he's saying in the letter is incorrect about the crime because we are having major issues here. But if he really wanted to collaborate, it would not call for a letter of that of that nature. It would probably be discussions very much offline to try and figure out what can really happen. Right now, he wants to basically make them look like they are failures, which is what he said, and to say, I'll have to take it over. He's threatened that many times before. Right now, the city of Chicago, the residents, really just want some solutions, yeah. and they don't want to see this partisan political game played back and forth. Well, we got Mick back on the line, and, and what do you think of this letter? And, and, I, and also, I want to say, I give kudos to the mayor's response, because the first response was on Twitter that was, you know, she just kind of pushed, you know, did the, the same kind of political rhetoric, but pushed after the editorial board, uh, the Tribune piece came out. She was very eloquent. Very, she was very on point saying, if you want to collaborate, let's collaborate on these issues. Mick, what's your thought on that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, someone who's interested, and I think the mayor, her, her second round at least was right. Someone who's actually interested in problem solving doesn't write a letter uh, released to the media where right. um, he not only pats himself on the back with some laughable lines about all everything he's done for minority communities, but you know actually uh, either reaches out personally or sends some top aides uh, to reach out and says, let's actually sit down and let's do some problem solving instead of making it yet a political response. Yeah. I thought it was right. interesting and, and very telling how the letter also included a a rap on Chicago and the state of Illinois for taxes. It's high taxes. Yeah, like, exactly. Which, hey, we, we can have a debate about that, but that does nothing to do with anything else. Well, well, but you know what? The only ahead. thing that I would say just really quickly, Mick, and Justin, this idea of the mayor's first initial response in which she called it a distraction, and I would caution the city of Chicago to not use those types of terms when you are talking about how many, three children under the age of mm-hmm. 10 who have all died. I don't think their mothers would think anyone intervention, whether political or not, would be seen as a distraction, even though both of us who know political games right. are looking at it kind of side-eyed, you know, his response. It just gets you angry, and, and, and I think that what it does is we just kind of get sick of the political rhetoric all the way around, and maybe that's what the right. trip was trying to get at. I think it was kind of a, a short-sighted uh, op-ed, but this is happening, and there is so much pain, and in the, in the, now we're talking about children, the 20-month-year-old, uh, three-year-old, thing, two three-year-olds, and and it seems like that should be the tone that the president should say, like, this should not happen in the United States. I'm willing to help. Let's make let's make this work, as opposed to some of the rhetoric that was in the letter. Yeah, not just I'm willing to help. He's the president of the United States, basically saying, I'm here to serve everyone in the United States, especially people who are being victimized at this point in time, people who would be otherwise forgotten about. And I want to do what it takes to get to the bottom of this. You didn't hear that kind of thing in there. Kimberly, you mentioned... Go ahead. (laughs) I will continue to lead the way to support historically disadvantaged communities. And then he lists out the stuff that he's supposedly done. I mean, it's just... I I don't know what member of of any of these communities would agree with that statement. Yeah, right, right. It's total political PR. Kimberly, you mentioned earlier the blue flu uh, texts, and that was something earlier, just as, as we saw murder, the murder rate... In Chicago, this murder soared in the month of June, but police activity plummeted. I want to play a clip from uh, the police union. This was essentially the idea of blaming that on a lack of morale and a distrust of the mayor. You're going to hear a lot of sound and fury 
but we're committed, we're gonna stay focused, and we're gonna make sure that that FOP contract, just like we did with the sergeants and lieutenants and captains contract, that FOP contract, for the first time in our history, is actually gonna speak the values of the residents of Chicago. So you're gonna hear a lot of noise from the FOP, that's part of the game, but I'm focused on making sure that we get wins at the bargaining table. Yeah, so that's the mayor talking about the, the idea of the, the police union blaming it on a lack of morale and a distrust of the mayor. There hasn't been a police contract, Kimberly, since 2017. I would assume we're going to get a lot more of this uh, he said, she said stuff uh, when it comes to police contract negotiations in the coming months. Yeah, and and the time is ripe for it. I mean, this uh, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. I know George Floyd never thought that his name would be ringing throughout the entire world. We're talking about reparations for for uh, the Congo because of what happened to George Floyd, and we're talking about police reforms all over. So this is the time uh, for them to catch lightning in a bottle to actually get some changes with that contract. Anyone who's familiar with the contract, police officers can delay the amount of time in which they respond. If there's a shooting, they can delay it up to days. Um, there are just so many things that are happening with that. But the one thing that I would say is that 2016 is the last time that we had a major surge in the violence. It was shown, the mayor at the time, Mayor Emanuel, went to Washington, D.C. and said that the police officers went, quote, unquote, fetal. We are experiencing that arguably right now with what is happening right now and it doesn't bode well when you're going into a contract negotiation for the populace of the city of chicago to have to say it looks like the police are standing down similar to what we saw during Mm -hmm. the unrest in the uh, mall on 54th and wentworth when the police officers were all relaxing in the congressman's office so it's going to be interesting to see how they're able to really mobilize to get some change in this contract yeah and and one story mick kind of fell into the radar, there's a lot going on, was the city finally released body cam footage of former police superintendent Eddie Johnson, who was found asleep at the wheel late last year. We all know the story. Uh, Eventually, that for him getting fired. What did we learn from that video? Because that was a big issue when it comes to trusting the police, because it's the same issues at play here about the idea of cover up and and not putting out everything that that, that goes along with, with, with the community has had issues with the police department played out in this case with Eddie Johnson. The release of the video raised as many questions as it answered. I, I didn't come away with a lot more information about the actual incident involving the former superintendent. I mean, you know, basically uh, a couple of police officers see him uh, apparently passed out. They essentially ask him if he's okay. He says he is, and they say, okay, good night. We don't really know what happened, you know, before or after that, and uh, the information uh, that was released doesn't appear to get at that. So I thought the most interesting part of the story was the fact that the city chose not to release the yeah. uh, inspector general's report. report on this right. incident and the investigation into it. And you had the mayor defending that decision, basically claiming that she couldn't because of the city code, which, by the way, she and her aides essentially wrote and if you read the language, it says that these investigations could be released under certain circumstances. I just think where there's a will, there's a way. If they wanted to release this information, they absolutely could have found 
a reason or justification to do so. They didn't want to release this report. And so we're all left wondering why. Kimberly, it's like a broken and, record, know, right? I think both sides don't want to release it. I think that Eddie Johnson doesn't want it released. Sure. And I think that it's a perfect storm. But think about when they released the video. They released the video right after we had these spikes in murders and everything else. It's one of those, like, it didn't drop on Friday at 3 p.m. The way that, you know, normally something will be released when you wanted to to detract from something else. But I think you're going to see some lawsuits in order to get that in um, IG report. This mayor came in office as someone who said that she was going to be far more transparent than previous mayors. And in some circles, that is being questioned about whether she's more or less transparent some of, than some of those other administrations. You know, we're, we're running out. We only got about five minutes left, and I want to run through these stories. One story as well that I thought was so important was that Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox says she's not prosecuting prosecutors from, or, or protesters for minor offenses like curfew violations. And I guess the question, I'll, I'll ask you this, Mick, the, the ACLU pointed it out, too. Just this idea that African-Americans were disproportionately arrested for curfew violations, and they got arrested. Yes. They got to sit in the jail, the whole thing, to get off the streets for curfew violations. And then the state's attorney comes in and says, oh, you know, we're not going to prosecute. But still, at the same time, why were they arrested in the first place? Well, that's the whole question, and that's getting back to what we were discussing earlier about violence prevention. I mean, if we're going to address disparities, social issues, unrest through law enforcement, you know, what do you expect the police to do? They're going to enforce what they see as the law. They're going to come up with reasons to to do uh, kinds of law enforcement. So in this case, some of the charges involved were things like disorderly conduct, which for decades has been one of those kind of vague, amorphous kind of charges that has been used uh, disproportionately in different neighborhoods. And then, of course, the curfew violations. Some people were arrested for curfew violations minutes after they were, the curfew right. was announced by the mayor. I mean, so it's like there was no possible way. There were people, the sometimes in the story, there were people from out of town who were arrested on curfew violations who didn't even know that it existed. I mean, it was impossible for them to know. So... Again, taking a step back, this is part of this broader conversation about the role of law enforcement and how it's used differently in different places. And obviously, um, the state's attorney, uh, Kim Fox, has said since she was first elected four years ago that she was going to bring a different kind of approach. And I think this is another one of those instances where she's following through on that promise. Yeah. Kimberly, one, one other story. To, you know, today they put out the numbers, the, the June numbers, when it comes to unemployment and, and the economy, and they look better. And the president was up on, in front of the podium today talking about what a historic uh, day for the economy, and it's raging back. And I just find there to be a disconnect. That I did the story a little bit earlier that June, uh, 30% of American homeowners missed their house payment in June. And, you know, there's so many other uh, economists and activists pointing out that, uh, that, you know, there's just not enough attention being paid to poverty in this country right now as the, the COVID-19 has just wreaked havoc on the system. I guess it's good numbers, but it just doesn't seem to be in line with what we know on the streets here in Chicago. I really I appreciate the fact that you did that story, and it's the idea of the silent majority, the people who are really suffering don't have a voice. I don't know, you know, if, if people who are listening have ever worked with data. Data can be manipulated in any way, shape, or form that you need it in order to get to where you want your message to be. Right now, when he's talking about the jobs numbers, I don't know if those people are employed well or underemployed. They may be a part of the working poor. I don't know 
know how he's getting to his numbers, but it is not translating or trickling down to the average everyday person who is really struggling. And I think that we definitely have to look well beyond just beyond, you know, him having a press conference and saying that the job numbers are up. He is going to have a rude awakening um, when we really get deep into this summer and COVID-19, we really feel the full effect of COVID-19 first wave as well as whatever next wave may come out. But I think that you're really on target with that, Justin. I don't see that trans into a strong economic uh, basis for many people. All right. My last story, and I have to mention it just as a kicker on the way out, is the hedge gate up on the north side (laughs) and North Lake Shore. Uh, A wealthy uh, property owner took public park and put a hedge around it to make it seem like his front yard. The best part of that story is that readers of the Block Club story and even Mark Brown over at the Sun-Times, they went and and hung out on the front uh, yard to point out that this was public land all yesterday. And today the hedges are gone. Mick, is this a victory for Chicago? I guess it is. I mean, it's a classic Chicago story, right? right? I mean, uh, someone who clearly feels entitled to essentially uh, take over public land for himself and his family's use, um, literally hedging it off from uh, from the rest of the park. So, yeah, I guess if you say the hedges are down, then that's some sort of uh, metaphor. Uh, let's call it a victory, right? It's, it's uh, Thursday before holiday weekend. We've talked about a lot of bad news today, you guys, so let's call this one a victory. The hedges are down. Okay. <laughs> that's it. All right, that's it for our news roundup. Thanks to our panel today. Great stuff. Attorney, activist, and WVON commentator Kimberly Agowen, and also with us ProPublica, Illinois reporter and columnist Mick Dumpke. Kim, Mick, Thank you, Justin. thanks so much. Have a safe weekend. Happy 4th. And that's a wrap for today's Reset. Look, I know you're going to want to hang out with your friends and family over the next few days, but be safe. Continue to wear masks, wash your hands, and put some space between you and other people. You do that, and you'll have a great holiday weekend. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening to Reset from WBEZ Chicago. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.